episode of Rallin's Rant and I'm joined today by Al Snow. Al is an American professional wrestler, color commentator, training coach and promoter. He is best known for his work in ECW, WWE and Impact Wrestling. Thanks a million for coming on the show today Al and how are things with you? Well thank you very much Richie and things are going great. If I were any better I'd be jealous of myself. (laughs) That's good to hear. So to kick on with this I'd like to bring you back uh, back in time to your early days as a child and you were born in Ohio and what are some of the memories you hold when you think back in your early years as a child and as a teenager? Well, I just, um, you know, when I was a kid you know, back then, uh, things were clearly a lot more simpler and uh, we, um, I was a wrestling fan at that time and, uh, you know, really was enamored with and enjoyed uh, watching uh, wrestling on TV um, we had the, uh, back then in the United States, we had regional uh, promotions, regional territories. Mm-hmm. And where I lived, we had Ed Farhat, was the original Sheik. Um, that was the, the wrestling that we got when I was growing up. And then he uh, went away. The uh, promotion closed up. And, um, and then Ted Turner's uh, WTVS uh, came on. And uh, we got, uh, I got exposed to Georgia Championship Wrestling, and that was it. I was like, you know, I'm done. That's what I want to do for the rest of my life is I want to be a professional wrestler. Made the decision right then and there that that was what I was going to do. And I'll be, I've been doing it now for almost 37 years. Which is a, a hugely substantial uh, period of your life. And at that time when you made that decision to be a wrestler, was there a clear alternative? Was college an option or another line of work? Or was it pretty much naturally it came to the fore that you were going to be a wrestler and there wasn't really any other uh, realistic alternatives? Uh, that, once I made that decision, there was no turning back. That was, that was it. I was going to be a professional wrestler and nothing was going to stop me. Now, keep in mind, back then, you, know, you didn't have uh, wrestling schools. You had to convince someone to train you and it was easier to be a made man in the mafia than it was to become a professional wrestler back in those days. And how did you, so obviously most wrestlers today, as you said, the the avenues are probably, the chances of getting exposed are a bit easier now than they probably were back in your day. But when you started out on the circuits or the indie circuits, like most aspiring wrestlers, like how does one go about getting involved in them? Do you have to contract contact a promoter? Do you have to wrestle in even smaller shows to get invited onto these circuits? How did how did the initial steps come about? The way it works is that, or used to, and and really should still work to this day the same way, <laughs> is that um, you would uh, get high. You know, you would find somebody who was willing to train you. They would they would train you. They would be basically responsible for you. So if you did anything that hurt business or you know you screwed up, it came back and reflected on them. So it was really tough to find somebody who was willing to step up and take that responsibility. But as such, what they would do is once they trained you, they kind of opened the door and they would introduce you to promoters and 
they would uh, bring you along with them and you'd, you'd kind of be almost like a, uh, an apprenticeship. Um, mm-hmm. They'd be there to supervise you and, you know, they would speak up for you and they would, you know, go to bat for you, so to speak. And then again, that's great. It helps you get the foot in the door, but not a lot of people wanted to do it because then they were held responsible for whether or not you were good or you were bad. And and what was like, say, the lifestyle like when you initially start out? Like, is it pretty much traveling from city to city? Would you base yourself in one state and consistently wrestle out of there? Or would you have to try and go to different states, different cities to kind of gain a reputation amongst the circus? Or like, basically, how did that work with regards to getting your name out there to the bigger promotions and the bigger companies? Well, there were, you know, it wasn't like it is now where, you you know, everybody's objective is to get with uh, WWE. Yeah. Uh, back back then, you know, you just went from territory to territory. And, you know, sometimes the territory, you know, the territory you were in was hot and was drawing money and it was good. And then you know, when it would cool off or like you had your run in that particular territory, then you needed to move on and go to another one. And, you know. It was constant, you know, and really all you did was you, people spoke up for you. They took responsibility for you. You, you know, sent, sent, uh, at the time you just sent an eight by 10 really. And then if they knew, uh, a particular guy that had been around you or had been, you know, on the same shows as you, they'd turn to that guy and ask, you know, Hey, what about this guy? What do you think of him? Is he any good? Can he draw money? And you, of course, then would, uh, you know, the guy would speak up for you and he would put his name on you. And then then you'd get booked based off of that if they had an opening or they had a spot for you. If not, mm. then you found some other place to work. When you were working and trying to prove your name on the circus before you eventually went on to sign with the likes of ECW and the WWF at that time, was there any key moments or experiences that stood out to you when you initially started off that proved to be either useful experiences or nearly a catalyst to you uh, going on to bigger and better things? Uh, just every chance that, you know, every chance and opportunity that I got to perform was, was exactly what you're saying. You know, it was, was a chance and an opportunity to learn and to get that experience that would help you have a better understanding of what it was you were really trying to do. The sad thing is, is that, you know, the, the uh, oxymoronic thing about wrestling is is that it takes so long for you to really get enough experience and to really understand what it is and why you're doing what you're doing that by the time you've got it all figured out in your head physically it's it's tough for you to do so you know it's kind of you know you got to try to learn from other people's mistakes as much as possible uh, so that you don't have to make them all yourself yeah and especially these days because these days you just don't have the opportunities to make those mistakes like, you know, like people used to, like I used to have. I had, you know, opportunities to make those mistakes. Now, you know, the stakes are so high, the investment in you by a promoter is so significant that you just can't afford to go out there and drop the ball. Do you mean that on a, even on the indie circuits or the more mm-hmm. the smaller? Or do you mean that in the broader sense of the big companies like WWE and even new companies like AEW? Or do you just mean at the lower levels? I mean, like in the, uh, the, 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 you know, upper companies, people don't realize, the wrestlers themselves don't realize everything that's done with them is an investment of time, money, and effort. 
And as such, like even as simple as I'm going to give you a six minute segment on television. Okay. doesn't matter if you win. doesn't matter if you lose. You're on television. That's what matters because the wrestling show itself is not a show. Um, the wrestling match is not a wrestling match. They're commercials to sell the product, and the product is you. You're, it's, it's your chance, your opportunity to go out there and, and motivate people to want to pay to see you. Now, if the more people want to pay to see you, you're now worth more money. You're an attraction. And to sell any product, you've got to have a commercial. And typically, that commercial time is going to cost how much, you know, depend, dependent on you know, years ago, in uh, when I was there uh, with WWE, WWE was you know fifty thousand dollars for thirty seconds of television time. So if wow. I gave you, you know, uh, six minutes, I've just put three hundred thousand dollars, and you just of that television time and nothing else. Not to mention the rental of the building, the staging, the p- crew that sets the staging up, the lighting crew, the sound crew, the camera crew. Uh, the ring crew, those semi trucks that you know they pull up with, the, you know I got to pay for all of that, and that's all an investment in giving you a platform to make yourself an attraction. That together we can make some money. We can make money together. You know I have a choice on my television show. I can take that six minutes and I can divide it up and I can sell it to different sponsors, or I can give you all six minutes to sell yourself. Hmm. And when you're on that television show. You need to realize that's that's an incredible opportunity. That's a it's a you know regardless of whether you win or you lose, it's it's an amazing chance for you to be able to you know go out there and you know sell your product, which is you. And it's like that's it's an interesting point you're making there with regards. To it's more or less a an advertising for your 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 yourself basically, and also what worth you could be to a company and does that bring it into a bit more current times with social media and youtube and all these video channels like does that put more pressure on the performer or the wrestler to just make sure that that memorable moment takes place in that match or say if it's a big pay-per-view they need something that they can really sell with regards to a moment or a move or some no. sort of dramatic thing not at all not at all. No, that's the biggest mistake that everybody's making. Everybody's making that. You can't sell, you, you don't sell, you sell moments, but your moments are to happen at the finish. The only thing you're ever selling in professional wrestling is who you are and why you do it. You're, and, and let's be honest, Richie, let's, you know, let's do a little, I always do this, this little game. Okay. Mm-hmm. I want you to think of your the most favorite match, the first match that comes to your mind that you really, really liked. You don't need to tell me because I'm never in it. So, <laughs> um, you got it in your head? Yep. Tell me anything other than the finish. Um, exactly. See, that's all you really <laughs> remember, isn't it? And yeah. You really don't really remember that as much as you remember how you felt. You may remember a spot or two, but you really only remember the finish. And that ultimately is what a performer, a professional wrestler is out there in the ring trying to sell. Everything they do from the moment they walk through the curtain to the moment they walk back and even afterwards, 
is to continuously sell and make predominantly the finish. That's it. That's because yeah. that's all you're going to walk out of there remembering. You're not going to remember. You're not going to. You might remember a move. You might remember a, a, a bump. But really, all you're going to really remember is the finish. Let's be yeah. honest. And that's the problem is that so many wrestlers these days are all doing what you exactly said they are trying to do. And that is because of social media and because of the internet and, you know, the video channels and all of that, they're out there just trying to sell, you know, I'm going to do, which listen, I'm all for it. I I'm a big fan of athleticism and, and everything, but uh, you know, you doing a, uh, setting yourself on fire and doing a double moonsault, people aren't, you know, they're not, that's not going to motivate them to buy a ticket to come watch you again. And that's, a, that's a God's honest truth. It's not. Um, what's going to motivate them to buy a ticket is that you made them care and made them believe, even if it's just for the time that they were watching your match, that you were, that win and that loss had consequence. And they really cared whether or not you got beat or if you, you triumphed, um, won the match itself. That's what's going to make them want to pay to see you again because that's what's going to make them enjoy it is because they, they want to they care whether or not you win or lose. Not that you just mm -hmm. did a move. And unfortunately, all the performers today in professional wrestling, all they care about is just trying to get that one move in as opposed to using that one move to make that outcome, that ending of the match mean as much as possible. No, I get, I get what you're saying that the more or less the storytelling in your view is much more valuable than that last two or three minutes, as you were saying, just that, that end and that finish. And obviously you've worked in, in the industry for a significant amount of time, more so than others, but like taking yourself back to when you initially say signed your big contract, where you first big contract with the WWF in 1995, did you kind of go in a bit kind of inexperienced, a bit overwhelmed at that stage? Like, do you look back on your first few years because your first few years in the WWF weren't exactly as successful as when you returned there several years later. Like, do you feel like your first stint there, you perhaps were a bit overwhelmed or a bit inexperienced or as you said, you just basically didn't know the industry as well as you do now. Uh, a combination of all those things <coughs> going in the first time I was, I was given a character. I was given a persona and knowing now what I, you know, knowing now what I do if I knew it then, um, I would have probably been able to succeed a lot more. Um, I'd had a better operator chance, but I was given a character. It wasn't really me. Also, I was brought in to perform in a certain way because back then I did a lot of aerial moves and things um, mm. where I was uh, doing a lot of springboards and, you know, you name it. I was doing a ton of stuff. And to be quite honest, you know, uh, I would, I could stand, I t say this all the time and it's the truth is, and there's probably tapes of it in Smoky Mountain Wrestling. I could stand on the ring apron in the center of the ring and I could 
jump up to the top rope in the middle of the top rope, turn around in midair, land on the top rope with both feet and moonsault into the ring. Um, and could land on my feet if I wanted to, or I could just, you know, do a moonsault, whatever I decided. Uh, I didn't draw money. People, you know, mm. going back to what we were talking about before, uh, that wasn't what made me successful. What made me successful was when I developed a persona, I developed a, you know, a character that was me, that was an extension of me. And um, with the head and, uh, you know, they, uh, and it, that's what really drew me money. And I didn't do as many moves as what I, it's not like I couldn't do them. It's just that I realized the audience wasn't paying to see me do the moves. They were paying to see me shake that head and talk to it and act crazy. Mm -hmm. And with your first stint, as you're saying, you were given a gimmick that you pretty much had no creative input to. Was that all kind of Vince or was that one of the riders pushing that? Like, were they the ones pretty much coming up with the ideas for matches and your, your move set and how you'd present yourself to the crowd? Or was there any individual aspects no, that you kind of pushed? I had input. Everybody always has input. Um, uh, even now to this day, um, you know, Vince is going to give you an opportunity. He's going to give you uh, a platform. He's going to, you know, uh, but it's up to you then to go out and, and to do it. You know, same writers don't make, you know, make a professional wrestler successful. They don't make a professional wrestler fail. You know, all they do is they come up with an idea or a direction and then, you know, you, the professional wrestler, have to go out and deliver when you step in the ring. Um, there's nothing that once you step through that curtain and on and head down to the ring, there's nothing that any of the writers or any of the or Vince himself can do uh, to help you. And uh, there's nothing that they can do to hinder you either. You know, they can they can make it more difficult with what they do and how they do it and how they book you. Sure. But. Um, but they can't prevent you from, you know, getting over or, uh, or doing business. You know, you've got to, you got to go out there and do that yourself. And that's, that's 100% on you, you know, and you, you know, Vince quite honestly will let you, um, I don't know what they do now, but I, I know back in the day, I mean, you were, you were free to do what you thought was right when you did it, but you had to be able to deliver, you know, and and would the consequences be just to give fans like myself an idea with Vince and with the team behind him, giving you that, that creative freedom, if you want to call it that, in the ring mm -hmm. to sell yourself and sell the match? If that didn't go well, say there's a few botched moves or the flow of the match didn't go well, the crowd didn't take an interest to us, would Vince be the type of boss that would immediately let you know that the match was pretty shit or would oh, yeah. kind of give you space absolutely would and you know first off it, they don't care about botch moves they don't care about you know flow of the match what they care about is whether or not if you're a baby face are you getting over with the crowd meaning is the crowd want to be you live vicariously through you okay if you're a heel are you out there doing things that now make the audience want to see the baby face beat you basically get heat um 
motivating them to want to pay to see you face that baby face and the baby face kick your butt, win, uh, defeat you. If you're not doing one of those two things, it don't matter how great your spots are. It doesn't matter how great your moves are. People aren't going to be motivated to see you. Moves and spots don't motivate people to pay to see a performer. What pays, what they pay to see is they want to, no matter what form of storytelling you do, whether it be the physical storytelling of professional wrestling, or it's you writing a book or you're doing a screenplay, you're telling one verbally, uh, you have to have an antagonist and you have to have a protagonist. And then you have to have a structure on how you're telling the story. If it's a murder mystery, if it's an action adventure, if it's a romantic uh, story or a romantic comedy, there's always a structure. Professional wrestling, you have to have the antagonist, which is the heel, and then you have to have a protagonist, which is the babyface, somebody that you can live vicariously through. I can prove this again. So, Richie, I want you to think of your most favorite wrestler, okay? First one that comes to your mind. You, you, again, you don't need to mention who it is because it's never me. So I've gotten used to it. <laughs> okay. You remember now? Yeah. Okay. How bad did you want to be just like that guy or girl? You, when you imagine you were going to wrestle, you were going to do moves like them. You were going to wear gear that was similar to them. You bought their merchandise. You said their catchphrases. Remember that? Yeah, no, I do. That's that's the term over, Richie. That means that guy was over with you. That means that you wanted to live vicariously through him. So now whenever anybody, if you remember, whenever anybody did anything to him, they basically were doing it to you too. Am I right? Yeah, no, that's exactly how I, exactly. I felt. And now you understand why you were motivated to watch it because you cared about him. And mm -hmm. that's... No. Not the moves. You didn't watch it for the moves. You didn't watch it for the spots. You watched it for him. You watched it because you identified with who he was and you and why you wanted to see you wanted to see him win. Yeah. No, that's a that's a, a dead on assessment. And you were you mentioned there the, the heels getting over with the crowd and you mentioned how No, uh, the heel not, if the heel gets over the crowd, he's now a babyface. Well, no, yeah, no, I know, I get that. I'm just, I'm just using the terminology with regards to the face and the heel and the good and the bad. But yeah. you were, you were mentioning that you were mentioning that when you first were in the WWF and that's what well, WWE to be politically correct right now, you weren't exactly getting, you weren't getting over with the crowd, you weren't getting heat off the crowd, you weren't getting a reaction from them, and that's ultimately one of the reasons why it didn't exactly work out as well as you probably would have wanted to but when you came back in 1997 and you had this new gimmick attached the head gimmick uh, it played such a big part in your identity it was quite relatable it interacted with the fans when you'd come out with your uh, theme song like where where did that new change of direction or where did that gimmick come from and whose idea was it to push it and then also kind of use it to the not what's the improvement of your character and then also increasing your popularity along the way? Well, it, you know, I was, I've talked about it before. I was at, in WWF at the time and <clears throat> was still blaming a lot of people. <clears throat> I really didn't know or understand what I do now and didn't take responsibility for myself and 
you know, I didn't try to, I didn't understand that the only one person I could control was me, you know? So as a result, I blame everybody else for, you know, my own frustrations and my own lack of uh, success. I was very frustrated, knew that I needed to, uh, I knew that I needed to get out of WWF and I had to go somewhere else and I had to get myself truly over. Um, cause if I stayed in WWF at that time and didn't go anywhere else, I was going to, you know, I was not going to, my career was going to be pretty much, it was going to be it. That was going to be done. Mm. So I got put on loan to ECW and I went there, you know, totally 100% with the thought process that I was going there just to get myself over. I was going to get myself over to the point to where WWE would pay to get me back. Um, ECW would pay to keep me or WCW would pay to take, you know, steal me away. And, you know, I got lucky. I went there and it was all about trying to um, create that persona, that character, that voice. Uh, more so than it was just about wrestling. Because prior to that, it was always about, I made the same mistakes and that was, it was always about the wrestling itself. Um, you know, a good example of that is, you know, I knew Jim Cornette for years. Uh, mm. and, and, you know, Cornette had started Smoky Mountain Wrestling and, you know, he was operating the territory, never had an interest in booking me, never had an interest in bringing me down. We knew each other. He knew what I could do. Didn't have an interest because I didn't have a definable persona or personality that then he could try to tell some kind of story or get some kind of, you know, uh, uh, do some kind of angle. And I, at the time, had trained uh, Dan Severn not only for professional wrestling, but also for uh, UFC, for his first UFC fight. And we went there, and um, they were interviewing Dan, and we, I made a couple smart-ass comments that Cornette saw when I was, you know, he was watching the pay-per-view at home. And then as a result of seeing that and seeing me be a smart ass, he saw a personality that then gave him an idea and created an interest. And he knew that he could do something with, uh, because of that personality. And then when Eddie Gilbert left, he brought me in to replace Eddie Gilbert. So, you know, that, uh, that was all driven because of the fact that I had created a, a persona, a personality of being a smart aleck and being a smart ass, you know, and as he puts it back then, you know, uh, people believed that, you know, they could kick my ass. Um, and that was my heat was running my mouth and being a smart aleck and being a, a basically a, a chicken shit heel that would start a fight, but then would run away from it and then talk and then talk crap about the very fact that I started the fight. You know, mm. so and, and during your time as that gimmick, there was a lot of different matches, a lot of different partners, a lot of different feuds you had, and like what what do you think were some of the highlights? Because you have you had 
you spent time with mankind as he was your partner. You spent time going after the big boss man in the kennel from hell. You had time fighting yourself. And then you also had that period where the hardcore championship was really, it wasn't the main thing in the, in the industry, but it was something that definitely interested a lot of the fans. I remember myself watching the 24 seven defending of the title, some of the memorable spots in the like kids zoo where I think it was crash. Holly was trying to run away from clowns, etc. But what, what part of those few years in the WWF stand out most to you with regards to you viewing it as a success and you at your peak? Uh, I, I viewed it, the whole thing is, you know, a success. I mean, <laughs> and especially the length of time that I got to spend there. Um, yeah. You know, that, you've, you, you, you know, uh, being in WWE is, is great. I mean, it's, it's I can't thank, um, you know, Vince and WWE for everything and all the opportunities they gave me. And, and you know, we wouldn't be having this conversation right now if it wasn't for the fact that I had been in WWE, mm. you know, um, no, you know, people know quite honestly, people, I have a name that people know around the world, you know, I've got and and all because of being in WWE, um, you know, I cannot, you know, thank Vince McMahon enough if it, you know, hadn't been for him giving those opportunities and putting up with me for as long as he did. Um, I couldn't have a cat. I have academies all through wrestling schools, uh, snow wrestling academies all through, um, you know, uh, the UK, Hungary, Denmark, uh, Romania, uh, Greece, uh, France, Italy, uh, South America. And, you know, uh, and, and, and now own OVW uh, in here in Louisville, Kentucky. So, you know, that's all a direct relationship to be, you know, being a part of WWE and, you know, picking one moment or one period of time would be tough uh, for me because just being there and having that opportunity that entire time was, was just, it was such a blessing. Yeah, no, I'd, I'd agree. It was, it was a, it was probably a special time in hindsight for any wrestler performing in that attitude era when it really, the, mid nineties to the early two thousands. So it was definitely something special going on in the company and for anyone to be a part of that, it must've been pretty special. And to touch on just some of the stuff you were doing during that time, like what, what, like say for instance, for a hardcore title game uh, match, I should say, like you held the title on a few occasions. A lot of the matches were starting in the ring that end up backstage that finish backstage with regards to the creative direction of the fight, as you were saying, Vince gave you a lot of freedom, especially with hardcore matches because they're not as they're a bit rare these days with the PG and all that. But back in that time, were you basically told, "Okay, this guy's going to win"? You fifteen minutes, just sell it to the audience, or was there a few spots that were premeditated and practiced? No, 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 no. It was, you know, we given the opportunity. You know, we were told. Basically, like you just said, you got 15 minutes, this guy's going to win, you know, go out there and, and set it up. You know, they would always ask me to try to come up with some type of situation where I would fight outside the building. And, uh, you know, I'd spend the day going around trying to lay things out where some stuff made, you know, like it was natural that there'd be a weapon 
there, you know, I tried to pick up, you know, find things that made sense that they would happen to be just sitting there in the building. You know, at the St. Valentine's Day Massacre when Bob Holly and I went in the Mississippi River, you know. Yeah, um, I remember that. Yeah, so, you know, and, and nobody came and told me to go into the Mississippi River. That was my dumb idea, you know. I was walking around outside, you know, and, uh, you know, that afternoon and it seemed pretty warm. I wasn't wearing a jacket and then, you know, didn't take into account that uh, the air temperature is a lot warmer than water temperature, uh, especially <laughs> in February. Thought, hey, uh, this will be good, you know, we'll fight into the river. And boy, that was, it was a lot colder than I ever imagined and it was a lot uh, deeper and the water was moving a lot faster and, <laughs> and it's in the water stunk. So. <laughs> so it wasn't the best of finishes, uh, hygienically <laughs> probably, anyway. Probably not. No, no. And last Surprised thing I'd like get scurvy. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Some mental disease. Um, and one, one of the last things I'd like to touch on of your time in the WWF, I had Ken Shamrock on, the podcast about a year ago and he spoke of unfinished business and one or two regrets, which I suppose is natural for whatever wrestler he can be in the company for a year, 15 years. I'm sure somewhere along the way, there's some sort of regret, but like, do you regret that you didn't spend more time in the WWE or that it didn't exactly work out that you didn't maybe get pushed for one of the major titles? Or do you think, you had your time, you made the most of it, you made the most of your gimmick, and that it kind of came to its natural conclusion and you had to look elsewhere. Well, no matter what, you know, <clears throat> everything has a beginning, a middle, and an end. You know, you're not going to last there forever. Um, and, you know, I, you know, I had a really good run. Um, I held the, you know, if you want to think just titles, I had the tag team title, the hardcore title, the European title. I mean, and I was on, I was on TV on both Raw and SmackDown, and even Sunday Night Heat, like on a weekly basis. Not to mention, they gave me the opportunity with Tough Enough to where I would, you know, I was a main part of that show for three week, you know, three seasons, four seasons actually. Um, so it really, you know, it was a. I really had a great, had a great time. I just, I regret that I made some of the mistakes that I made. And if I knew then what I know now, I could have capitalized more on all of the opportunities that they gave me a lot greater than what I did. And like, to give an example, what would be one of the mistakes that you made that kind of stand out, whether it was in the ring or outside it? Uh, just for instance, like, you know, uh, understanding the business of matches, um, uh, for like that very first match that I went up there and did with with as Avatar, that match that wasn't to have a good match. That wasn't to have a a five star match. That was a match that was there, you know, to sell me to get me over. And instead, I worked it as a competitive situation with a guy that they weren't selling. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And as a result, um, you know. I didn't do what I should have done, which was gotten myself over. Um, and that, that, that was a, that was a failure on my part. I didn't utilize the opportunity to my best advantage. Now that, that I get, I get exactly where you're coming from. 
you know, you've got to understand like you, they're not going to tell you just so you understand. They're not going to, uh, they're not going to tell you, but there are matches where like, and you can do it yourself as well. Like, you know, if you're wanting to be the next heavyweight champion, you need to work like you're the heavyweight champion now so that you start selling not only the audience who's out there watching you in the front, but the audience that's in the back. Uh, you've got to make them see and understand that you can, you should be the next heavyweight champion. So that that way, in six months, when they start booking you for the title, everybody in the building, front and back, all go, oh, yeah, of course. Yeah, it makes sense. He should... He could be the next heavyweight champion. But if you never, if you're always out there and you're always trying to have the best match on the show, which means that in order to have the best match on the show, it's going to have to be a competitive match. Then you're working with guys that are either smaller or lower on the card and you're either taking yourself down to their level or you're bringing them up to yours. And that's not elevating you to work as if you should be at the top of the card. Do you understand? Yeah. No, I get exactly what you're saying. And a lot of guys don't, they they don't do that anymore. They, they go out there and they always, it's all about what you had said about having that moment, doing that move, that spot, having that five-star match when really it's a match that was meant to sell them and make them look like they could be, you know, the next heavyweight champion. Yeah. And did you feel that's because, as you said, now you you do a lot of coaching. You said you've got wrestling schools scattered all over Europe, and there's a lot of aspiring wrestlers growing up in this generation. And I've seen even some of the videos you've done about the tricks of the trade or the art of selling a move or a punch. But do you feel, seeing as you used to be a wrestler, a young wrestler getting coached, and now you're coaching some of these guys who are new to the game. Is it different now how coaches teach wrestling as it was to say 20 years ago when you were getting coached? And if so, what exactly has changed? Uh, what has changed is that what you were, you were taught or, and I, I don't, let me see if I can word this correctly. When you were taught now, you were brought in, you're taught how to take a bump. You're taught how to lock up. You're taught a couple rudimentary holds, and then you're taught to hit the ropes and then starting to do what people believe are high spots. The way that I was taught and the way that I teach is that I teach you the basics and the fundamentals first and foremost. And I'm very, uh, I'm not real nitpicky on style or technique um, on a lot of things. I hear about the number one rule in wrestling is if it sells tickets, then do it. Okay. But what I want you to do is I want you to, I want you to be believable and I'm going to teach you how to walk properly in the ring because there's a proper way to walk. If you watch wrestlers these days, they all make the most common mistake, which is they cross their feet. You never cross your feet in a professional wrestling ring or boxing ring or MMA octagon. The reason you don't is that you're out there and you need to keep your feet up underneath you at all times. Uh, and your balance, because if at any moment the guy were to come in and shoot in on you and you were to cross your ankles, you'd go down. 
If you watch MMA fighters, they never cross their feet. You watch boxers, they never cross their feet. So my point of contention is, one, I, I don't believe that there's any old or new school uh, because what was fake in professional wrestling when I first broke into business 37 years ago is what's still fake today, and that's just the outcome, And if you want to use the word fake. Um, so back to my original point, which is that you're always out there trying to sell the audience on the one thing they're paying to believe in, which is the outcome. And the only thing that's changed about professional wrestling, it's grown, it's developed, it's become, it's evolved, but really we're still selling the exact same thing that we were selling 37, 47, 57 years ago. And that's just the outcome, just the finish. Uh, just so you're aware, people knew 40 years ago, 50 years ago, that professional wrestling was predetermined. They knew that the outcome was set before you walked out there, that it was not a competitive situation. The reason that they bought tickets and paid to see it in by the thousands around the world is that because while they were there, they could watch, they could believe, they could invest in that outcome, felt like it had a consequence, that it had gravity, that it meant something to win or lose, much like any other competitive sporting event, um, which is what drives attendance for those, that and also relatability. So when I teach people to wrestle, I in the beginning, I teach them uh, how to move, timing, distance, footwork. And uh, you learn actually how to really wrestle. You learn how to truly sell. Selling is not acting just like you're hurt. Selling is trying to sell the audience on the idea that you're using whatever move or hold in that ring to defeat your opponent and then your opponent is selling that audience on the belief that that move or hold is going to possibly lead them to losing and that they need to counter it. Um, you go back and you watch matches, let's say from the eighties, uh, you know, um, and I do this with, with the students, I'll have them go back and watch older matches. Uh, it doesn't matter who the wrestlers are. There's a, there's a dramatic difference between the match you watch then and the matches you watch now. One, you know, people would say, well, one is the speed of things and, you know, the athleticism. And they're right about the athleticism. I mean, there's more athletic ability in the professional wrestling business now than there ever has been in the, whole, in the history of the whole sport. But the difference is back then, any match you watched, there was a flow to it. There was a constant, continuous effort it seemed like for one person to gain an advantage and maintain it to then eventually lead them to win and the other person always constantly trying to change that around and gain the advantage so they could win there was always that feeling that flow to that match now no matter what the match is you watch and you can tell me if i'm wrong it's guy a gets his stuff guy b immediately gets up does his stuff Guy A then gets up and does his stuff, and then Guy B now gets up and does his stuff. Then they both go down. Then they both get right back up, and they both now go into big moves that are false finishes, according to them, and then they, they eventually go home. 
Am I not correct? You are, yeah. Yeah. And nine times out of ten, the match always ends up on the floor. And match one is pretty similar, maybe not move-wise, maybe not, you know, but almost the same flow, the same uh, the same pace. Match one's the same as match ten. None of them have their own unique feel, their own unique flavor, their own unique vibe, you know. Every match goes on the floor. Everybody punches. Everybody kicks. Everybody does some kind of aerial moves, no matter what size they are. Everybody does dives. So where do you, where do performers, how do they stand out? How do they become, you know, an attraction in and of themselves if they're just like everyone else match-wise? And so when I train guys or girls too, I train them to try to create as much as possible that illusion that they're really out there uh, trying to win. To allow that audience is to be as easy as possible for them to suspend their disbelief and really emotionally get connected and involved in the match and really care. It's interesting you say that as in with regards to selling a punch or selling a move. And I think one of the things that wasn't mentioned there that I think has kind of contributed to modern wrestling having more or less the same flows is that back when I was younger watching it in, say, the Attitude Era or when you were wrestling, the finisher had much more power than it does now. It seems like any, it can be Brock Lesnar doing it. It can be a jobber doing it. Finishers don't seem to be the be-all, end-all anymore. That, you know, a long time ago, if the Stone Cold hit a stunner, that's it. That's nine times out of ten, the match is over. Well, now it seems if someone just hits a finisher, it's probably going to be a two count. It might get the crowd off their feet a little bit, but more often than not, it's just maybe the beginning of the end rather than the actual conclusion of a match. And there also, I do feel there's times, like I don't watch wrestling as much as I used to, but I do find that there is stages in current wrestling whenever I watch it that there's times where I'm like, Jesus, he or she didn't really sell that because a lot of the fans know what it's like to get punched in the face. They know what it's like to get hit with a chair, maybe not full on, but they know the feeling. Well, I just feel sometimes the actual storytelling and the sell of a punch or a kick or a low blow isn't as realistic as it used to be. And just like that, the finisher no longer holds the same prestige as it used to back in, say, the late 90s, early 2000s. And that's because the focus now, um, back to our original conversation, the focus is all about, you know, trying to have that moment, trying to do that one spot that people remember as opposed to remembering just the finish. Because ultimately, that was what, that is what is different is that in the back of the day, the, the professional wrestlers, all they cared about was selling the finish. Everything sold to the finish. And... Everybody thinks that kayfabe is dead, but kayfabe isn't dead. Kayfabe was no, was all kayfabe was, was a respect for your audience and never not selling what they bought. You know, if they bought into who you were as a character and they bought into why you were doing it, you didn't then get on any, you didn't, you didn't go walk around and not be that guy. You didn't walk around and then, you know, you didn't go into the building with the guy that you were working with that night because it killed what you were selling. They didn't, I can tell you, I can't tell you how many times I've heard 
from people <clears throat> over the years. Oh, I used to be a professional, you know, I used to love professional wrestling. You know, I really, man, I really enjoyed it. And, um, you know, I was really excited to go. Then I saw so-and-so pull up to the building with the so-and-so in the same car. And then I was like, that's it. I'm so, you know, so disappointed. I'm never watching it again. Mm. And the reason they, you know, is they were sold on something. They cared about it. They invested in it emotionally. And then they were betrayed. Uh, it's, it's not what you bought. You know, we just took your money. <laughs> and, you know, and everybody goes, well, it's different now because you got social media. It's not social media's fault. It's the fault of who uses social media. It's fault of the performers. Yeah. You don't have to go, you know, I tell God, I tell all my trainees, everybody, if you're not comfortable on social media being the character, the gimmick that you sold to the audience and selling the finish like you really cared about winning and losing, if you're not comfortable doing that around friends and family, make another social media page for just your friends and family and then just be who you really are and discuss whatever you want to discuss, but block it from the general public and then make a social media page that is who you are in the ring and now act and behave accordingly to everyone. No, that's, that's a fair, fair point. And you even see the big kind of story in, in wrestling at the minute is Becky Lynch and she's using social media to kind of attack the McMahons and the WWE brand. So it is it definitely can still be used as a tool. And as you said, it's not social media's fault. It's how people use it, whether it's to their advantage or disadvantage. But Just keep in mind, keep in mind, Richie, <clears throat> your job as a, as a professional wrestler isn't to go out there and wrestle. Your job is to motivate people to want to pay to see you and care about your match enough to where they um, they want to leave their house, drive to a building, and pay to see you wrestle. That's a hard, hard job. It's, it's, it's hard enough, if you think about it, how, how often do you go watch major motion pictures, major films, and how much money have they invested in both the production of that film and in the marketing and advertising of that film. And it still takes a lot to motivate you to leave the house, to go watch it. Am I correct? Yep. Now I'm asking you to leave your house, the comfort, security, and safety of your home to not go to a building and sit in a leather recliner in the dark. I'm asking you to go to a building, sit in a crappy chair around people you don't want to sit around that you don't want to look at to see me do my job. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to get you to care. I'm going to get you to invest. I'm going to get you to emotionally really uh, want to see the outcome of the story that I've told you. But then I'm immediately going to go on social media and I'm going to basically betray everything that I sold to you. I'm going to sell you a toaster. It's I'm going to sell you a toaster. It's all chrome. It has 16 slices. It's got a bagel uh, gimmick in the center. You've got 23 settings. You're going to go to the store. You're going to buy the toaster. It's got a picture of that toaster on the box. Call chrome, 16 slices, bagel gimmick in the center, 23 settings. You're like, I cannot wait to get this toaster home and make some toast. I love toast. Who doesn't love toast? Toast amazing. 
Yeah. You're going to get it home. You're going to open that box and you're going to pull the toaster out and it's all black and it only has four slices, no bagel gimmick in the center, and it only has 10 settings. Do you think you're happy? No, I'd be furious. You'd be furious because you didn't get what you paid for, what you were sold. And the same goes with wrestling. Um, the only thing that's yeah. changed about professional wrestling is the sophistication of your audience. That means that you as the performer have to work smarter and harder to allow your audience to really invest emotionally in your what you're doing in the ring and therefore be motivated to want to see it again and again in greater numbers. Yeah, no, that makes that makes perfect sense. Albeit with the toaster and actually with the words you were saying. It it's it definitely is something that it's hard to put your finger on as a fan. It's something you don't often think about, but it is about getting people to pay money to that company rather than, as you said, selling a particular moment, a particular move. And that's that's ultimately what keeps the WWE ahead of the rest of the competition. And to kind of to move away a bit from that. And you, you briefly brought it up that you've you're now in charge of Ohio Valley Wrestling. Like that that's your first real stab at owning and running a wrestling company. And what sort of challenges did you face early on as an owner of such a, a wrestling company? Well, I, it's the challenge is is that it's um, it's it's a monster. It's really it is a, a an ongoing, never ending challenge because I'm running an ongoing concern. I'm not just looking to promote a once monthly show or just even a, you know, every other couple of months or something. Every Wednesday, I have to run an event and tape it for television and produce a television show. Um, And I have to attract an audience to that event every Wednesday. I also then have to run once monthly events that where the television shows culminate and try to motivate a larger attendance to those. Um, so it is a nonstop constant, uh, you know, uh, challenge to try to, you know, keep that going because no sooner than you've got one done, you're, you've got the other one staring you right in the face and trying to get ahead of it. Uh, and stay ahead of it to where you can properly promote and um, have enough time to promote and, you know, motivate the largest amount of an audience that you can to come to pay to see it. Man, that's the most difficult thing. And then, mm. and then to, con- to, you know, to constantly be creative, to constantly, you know, one up yourself, to constantly come up with a way that you're, Heel can get heat on your baby face and your baby face thing can get back over on your heel, but without actually getting truly physical and giving the audience what they want to see, which is, you know, uh, for, you know, as simple as, you know, the audience is wanting to see the baby face haul off and kick the, you know, the heels ass. Well, you got to figure out ways to where the baby face still gets up on the heel, which now gives the heel motivation to, continuously get more heat on the baby face that drives the audience to that much more want to see the baby face kick the heels ass, but you can never have your baby face kick the heels ass until you get to a match where the audience has paid to see it and showed up in attendance. And then finally 
you let the baby face give the audience what they've wanted to see. But that's that gets tough. And you've got to always come up with new and different and interesting ways to do it um, every single week that now motivates the audience to want to constantly tune in because they're afraid if they don't, they might miss something. It's, yeah, it's, not, it's, not, it's not easy. <laughs> it's not easy. No, I could imagine. And it's, it's a good point you mentioned there that it's never really, okay, let's just get this show right. As you said, it's just, it's a monster. It keeps coming and keeps coming. And just as you finish one show, you're thinking of the next show and then you're thinking of the next one, et cetera, et cetera. And, and on that and keeping everything fresh and keeping the crowd coming back and wanting more and staying interested. There's been a lot of talk recently about the WWE, AEW now with Chris Jericho signing and a few other free agents signing. Do you ever envision a situation where the WWE is no longer the Godfather, is no longer the big institution of wrestling? Um, do you think there is hope for other wrestling companies to create a big sustainable monster like WWE? Or is it a case that that's, that's the mama that's always going to be the mama and everything else is just going to be that two or three steps below it. I don't think you can, you know, WWE here's a, here's a couple of things that to keep in mind. All right. Mm. One WWE is an iconic brand. WWE is no longer, it's not just WWE. WWE is like Band-Aid or Q-Tip, you know, Listerine, um, yeah. Harley Davidson. You think of motorcycles, you think of Harley Davidson, you think of, you know, you, you think of wrestling, you think of WWE. That's what yeah. most people know is WWE. Um, and that that is a tough, tough road to hoe. You're not gonna you're not gonna beat WWE. You know, you're not gonna replace them. Um, you've got to offer an alternative to WWE. You've got to offer something, you know. You're going to still sell the same thing they're selling, but you're going to sell it in a different way. You're going to package it in a different way. You're going to offer, you know, personalities and characters um, and wrestlers that they don't offer. Uh, you're going to have a different style, different direction than what they do. Um, but WWE is always going to be WWE. And that was, the, you know, that was TNA always got a hard knock, you know, you know, the, because they were like, well, you know, you know, WWE this, WWE that. WWE's been around since Vince's father and Vince's grandfather and his great-grandfather. So they have years, decades of experience and understanding and uh, time built, you know, to refine their approach. And their thing had been around, has been around for, what, 15, 16 years, which is remarkable mm. considering where they started and that they're still – even uh, they're still uh, surviving, you know, maybe not necessarily thriving, but still surviving. Uh, you got to, you know, keep that in mind that, you know, they have all of that time, all of those connections, all of that experience and all of those resources that other companies aren't going to have, you know, because mm -hmm. they're just not, you know, no matter how much money you have in regards to, you know, uh, another company starting up, it's just starting up. It's just coming out of the gate. So they don't have, they don't have the connections. They don't have the resources. They don't have the experience that WWE has. 
Yeah, and I suppose Vince is finding that out a bit with the what's it, the XFL trying to compete with the NFL. So he's uh, the shoes on the other foot in that instance. But it is, it is something that, as you said, when you think of wrestling, you immediately think of WWE, and it's going to be very tough for that to dematerialize and change. But I suppose it's about offering something slightly different, something unique or a different character or a different way for the fans to experience wrestling with these up-and-coming wrestling companies. And I suppose that's what keeps the industry fresh. Um, but like that, that more or less concludes the formal part of the podcast, Al. And traditionally, we, we tend to finish with a quick fire round. So okay. if you're up for it, I, I'll ask you a few quick fire questions and I'll let you uh, enjoy the rest of your day after that. Sure. So the first question is, what is the strangest thing you've seen while working in the wrestling business? Oh, my God. Oh, man. Ooh, geez. <laughs> I've seen a lot of strange things, man. I'm telling you. A lot of I strange can imagine. things. Saw a guy, a wrestler years ago, you know, at, a, at this fan's party at their house, come out of the, the bedroom and the woman's clothing and Another wrestler was taking hard-boiled eggs and stuffing them up his rear end, and they were shooting across <laughs> the room. So, you know. Oh, yeah, they, they, they can definitely suffice as sufficient answers anyway. Um, <laughs> the next one, favorite WWE wrestler of all time? Uh, favorite WWE wrestler of all time? Me. I love <laughs> me. I can't get enough of me. I think that me is amazing and just... <laughs> Absolutely incredible. Oh, pretty, I'm my biggest pretty, fan. Yeah. I really am. <laughs> Good promo. Thank you. And next would be, who is the best wrestler you've ever worked with Worked with in the ring? Ooh, that'd be tough. There have been some really great people with for different, you know, different styles and different approaches. And um, You so can name two or three if needs to be. Uh, gosh. Chris Candido, Chris Benoit. Uh, Bob Holly, Christian was a day off. Uh, Just Incredible was a day off. The list could go on and on, I'm sure, for several different yeah. reasons. And second last one, what is the worst advice you see or hear being given in your world? The worst advice I see or hear, go out and have the best match on the show, kid. <laughs> in what oh. regards is that terrible advice? Was that terrible advice? Because... You're going out and you're now, I don't care what people say, uh, most professional wrestlers now go in the ring and they don't perform for the audience. They perform for the wrestler, the other wrestlers backstage, and they perform for just a few fans who are going to write a report about whether or not they had the best match on the show. That's it. They don't perform for the audience. They don't care. They, well, you have to, they are, we are the worst thing, quite honestly, and as a, a professional wrestler, I mean, I'm, it, I shouldn't complain, but I honestly think one of the worst things that has happened to professional wrestling is that the professional wrestlers get guaranteed money. And now I know some will flip out and be like, oh my God, what are you talking about? You know, you're only saying that because you're a promoter now. No, I'm not. I'm not saying that just because I'm a promoter now. Yeah. The the quite honestly, the way that the wrestling business operated has always operated and quite honestly still operates is that your value, you're not entitled to anything. This isn't a job. This isn't this isn't Tesco or Walmart or or any other retail outlet. You don't 
get hired as a professional wrestler. And the the concept that, oh, WWE fired so-and-so, they don't fire anybody. They'll release you from your contract, but they don't hire you as an employee. You are an independent contractor. It is a business relationship between you and the promoter. You will go to the ring. You will do certain things to make yourself a detraction. You'll either get over or make as or a, as a heel, you'll get some kind of heat that'll motivate people to want to pay to see you. So now your name on any form of advertising is going to potentially sell tickets. Okay. Now your value is in direct relationship to how many tickets will your name potentially sell. Now I know you're in, are you in Northern or Southern Ireland? I am in Southern, Southern. Ireland, not Northern, so Ireland. Yeah. Right, right. So you guys uh, operate on the, uh, the Euro. Yeah. Okay. So if I put Richie Allen's name on a poster, how many tickets at 10 euros a ticket are you going to sell me, Richie, just based on your name? How many people are going to walk into oh. a convenience store and see Richie Allen and go, oh, my God. He's on the show. I'm going to buy a ticket. Um, I don't think, uh, well, a few. And I think it'd be more for the comedy aspect rather than the actual prof- professional. Doesn't aspect. matter. All that matters is that they sell, they buy a ticket. So let's say three. You're worth, yeah. you're worth less than 30 euros in value. Because quite honestly, I need to only pay you 10 euros because you're only going to sell me three tickets. So I have to also pay for rent of the building, the ring, insurance, etc. So I, I got to try to make a little bit of money off of you. So you're only worth 10 euros. Now, if you sell me 100 tickets, you're worth about 60 euros. You understand? That's how it yeah. works. And now wrestlers, performers all believe, well, I don't need, you know, I, I told this on the Steve Austin podcast, my daughter, lover dearly, was dating a wrestler. He was a wonderful guy, nice guy. And he came to me and asked me my opinion. And he had mentioned that a promotion had off, you know, wanted him to come in. And they had offered him 40 US dollars to wrestle. And he said, uh, you know, that's all I get. And the guy, the promoter said, yes, we start you out at that. And then as you come in and you get going, you know, we will, you know, bump you up. Um, but on, depending on how well you draw, he goes, well, I need at least 50. Um, and the promoter said, well, will you start everybody out at 40? And he said, well, I told him that I can't come for anything less than 50. Did I make the right decision? I said, no, you didn't. He said, why is that? I said, well, if I put your name, which his name was Dustin Reyes, I said, if I put your name on a poster, how many tickets at $10 a ticket are you going to sell me? He goes, well, probably none. I said, so let me get this straight. You're not going to sell one ticket based on your name alone. But you're asking for five tickets of value, but nobody knows you and they're not motivated to pay to see you just because you're on the show. So he was offering you four tickets of value. So really, he was kind of overpaying you. He goes, well, when you put it that way, I go, what other way is there to put it? Because that's how the business operates. You're not entitled to $50 just or 50 euros just to leave your house. You can go to the building and then use that opportunity to sell yourself and then make money together with the promoter. But you're not, it's not like, you know, you go to Walmart and you work eight hours, you go to Tesco and you work eight hours. 
and you get however many euros per hour and you're entitled to that money because you put in your eight hours as an employee, you're not an employee. You're a professional wrestler, which means that you now are going out there as a business relationship with a promoter, giving the promoter something that he can utilize and exploit and promote to where the you will use the platform he gave you to draw an audience to pay to see you perform. And then the two of you together will make money. That's some sound advice. I love how the question ended up talking about the worst advice you hear, and then you ended up giving some pretty good advice. So he got two, two great well, answers for the price of one. Last but not least, and this is the toughest one, uh, describe yourself in three words. Uh, wrestler, insane. <laughs> no, I'd say mad. Mad is different than insane. Uh, <laughs> mad and uh, old. So Okay. Wrestler, mad, old. That's an interesting combination. But um, that, <laughs> that that concludes the podcast, Al. So I want to thank you a lot for coming on and spending time and allowing me and the many listeners to hear the many insights you have into the wrestling business and what you make makes you tick as a person. So I'd just like to wish you all the best in your future endeavors. And yet again, thanks a million for coming on and chatting all things wrestling. What are you, releasing me from my contract? You're wishing me all the best in my future endeavors? What are you doing? <laughs> Both, baby. <laughs> oh, geez. Uh, well, thank you very much for, you know, uh, having I've been to Ireland. I've wrestled in Ireland, and I, I love it very much. And I uh, think the fans are awesome. And uh, hopefully one of these days I'll be able to come back soon. So, Yeah, fingers crossed. Yeah. Well, thank you, sir. No worries. Take care, Al.